Thank you. Welcome to this informal meeting for members of 12-step fellowships who are interested in recovery through the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous. My name is Alastair and I'm an alcoholic. To set the tone for the meeting, I will read an extract from the preface of the big book. Because this book has become the basic text for our society and has helped such large number of alcoholic men and women to recovery, there exists strong sentiment against any radical changes being made in it. Therefore, the first portion of this volume describing the AA recovery program has been left largely untouched in the course of revisions made for the second, third and fourth editions. The section called the doctor's opinion has been kept intact just as it was originally written in 1939 by the late Dr. William D. Silkworth, our society's great medical benefactor. At tonight's workshop, we will start on page uh, 17, chapter two, there is a solution. And uh, Tim will work through the text, paragraph by paragraph, pausing for questions. Uh, am I ready to roll, Alistair? Sorry, I, I just I did, went into full screen mode and I lost the script. Uh, this can be done by the raised hand function, Zoom, or you can message me through the chat function and I will ask Tim directly. We will try and close around the hour mark. And with that, I will hand over to Tim. Good, good morning, every, uh, good evening, everyone. <laughs> that was a bad start, wasn't it? Tim, alcoholic, it's definitely the evening. Uh, the more faces I can see, the better, by the way. So if you can bear to turn your screens on, it helps me a lot. Uh, but of course, if you can't, that's fine too. So uh, I'm an alcoholic. Chapter two, there is a solution. Well, that's a controversial line. Um, uh, someone I know in recovery this week said that they, they wanted to stop going to a particular meeting because whenever they mentioned God, someone scowled at them. And I, I, I certainly identify with that. I've been to meetings where if you suggest there's a solution to something, you'll get, you'll, you'll get hounded out of the room. So it's terribly controversial, the, the notion, less that there's a solution to alcoholism. I think that that's widely understood in AA. Um, although I tell you, as I, I shouldn't really say this if it's going on tape, but then again, there's so much damning material out there already. I might as well be hung for sheep as for lamb. Um, <laughs> there, are, uh, there are meetings where the topic is the reason AA is so great is it sobers you up so you can go and have therapy and therapy is the only thing that helps AA all it does is keep you physically sober and that's a view you know if that's someone's experience that's someone's experience so it is a, actually a radical idea to say that there is a solution in AA not just to alcoholism but to everything else uh, if you think I'm forthright on this, you should hear Paul Martin. Paul Martin died with oh, 60 odd years of sobriety. He was brought in by Paul S, who was brought in, who was sponsored by Paul S, who was sponsored by Dr. Bob. And uh, Paul Martin is very, he's wonderful because I, I think. Uh, although he's not famous within AA, he's not as famous as some of the figures. I think, frankly, he's he, he is the one person who is responsible ultimately for the whole revival of the big book uh, as a method of recovery. 
which sort of started in a small way in the 60s and then took off in the a little bit in the 80s and then really burgeoned in the 90s. Uh, because he had this idea, first of all, of continuing to work the steps for the rest of your life. And secondly, this notion of completing uh, two things he did, uh, multiple step fives. So you take step five with so many people that you become totally bored with your own story. Uh, and secondly, you complete every single last amend and you continue to scour the past until there is nothing left. And those are, those are not, those are innovations really, but they're all basically contained. The seeds of those are contained in the big book and in the steps. It's just no one ever did them. Whereas he was one of the first people to actually do that. And it is that, in my experience, those two particular things, sharing your whole picture with enough people that there's nothing hidden and uh, continue, uh, and making every single last amend, even for very minor things from childhood being absolutely key. Anyway, that's another topic. We, of Alcoholics Anonymous, know thousands of men and women who were once just as hopeless as Bill. Now, I just want to get the first edition. Um, I haven't got a first edition, first edition. I've got a reprint, and I'm just curious. You see, there are differences in the version we have now. This is the fourth edition. The first edition says we of Alcoholics Anonymous know 100 men. It was actually 99 plus one. Jimmy B said, I don't think there was any point that all 100 people were uh, sober in the same room at the same time. It's all a little bit questionable. Anyway, so if you see things which couldn't have been true in 1939 in the book, that's why is because they updated certain passages afterwards. The original says 100 men who were once just as hopeless as Bill all have recovered. Oh, wow. Okay, now it says all, nearly all have recovered. Originally it said all have recovered. <laughs> there we go. A little bit of hedging, hedging added. Um, uh, by the way, there's a lot of hedging in the big book. Uh, you know, if blah, 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 then probably blah, blah, blah. Uh, almost certainly, these little things, rarely have we seen a person fail. It's not by accident. It's, uh, if, if your proposition, if your proposition is that the program never fails, your proposition is defeated by the evidence of one person for whom it has failed. If you say it works for, well, pretty much everyone, that's almost impossible. You can't defeat that you'd have to have a huge statistical sample. So the reason why they hedge is to not, is so that there's, there isn't a target you can shoot at because people will rush forward with their, with their counter examples. If you hedge, then you can't defeat the proposition. Uh, anyway, uh, they have solved the drink problem. We are average Americans, all sections of this country and many of its occupations are represented as well as many political, economic, social, and religious backgrounds. Just on that point, I don't know if anyone's, this is such a good joke. Uh, you may or may not be familiar with it. Uh, it's, the, it's the idea that um, uh, someone goes to AA in some little town in Ohio, and uh, the local chap says, yes, we're a very, very ecumenical bunch here. We've got in our local AA group representatives of the three major world religions. 
Um, uh, and the man says, really, that's very interesting. Which of those? And he says, uh, Unitarians, Episcopalians and Baptists. <laughs> and that kind of covers early, early AA. It wasn't nearly as broad as they'd hoped. Hence, all of Bill's stuff, which is, although he says, you know, you can have any concept you want, it's very much God, A, created the universe, B, is anthropomorphic. Um, but of course, as we know from, if we read ahead, uh, we, we, we can uh, broaden that out for our own purposes, but I'll cover that. If we do cover, if, if, we, if we all turn up for uh, we agnostics, we can cover that there. Anyway, where people who normally would not mix, uh, a friend of mine says that's one of the larger understatements in the big book. We are people who normally would not mix. No offence to anyone. Um, but there exists among us a fellowship, a friendliness and an understanding which is indescribably wonderful. I think there's an important point here. I don't personally think it's healthy to only hang out in groups where everyone thinks like you and votes like you. I think it's really helpful to go to groups where people have very, very different lives and to grow with where you're grow where one is planted and to find a way to thrive there, even though people are odd. Um, my home group is odd, um, the, the, the one in San Antonio. I love it, but there are a lot of opportunities for growth. I'm sure people find me an opportunity for growth in that as well. I'm sure I've figured on people's inventories in the same way that they figured on mine. It's all too easy these days. to. I go to a lovely meeting in Sedona, but you know what Sedona's like. It's like the, the, the demographic is wafer thin. It's so everyone's cut from largely from the same cloth and it's great. But there's something missing because it doesn't have this sort of weird collection where literally it's very clear. Tradition three is an operation. The only requirement but membership is a desire to stop drinking. And we're not even screening people for that. Um, we're like the passengers of the great liner the moment after rescue from shipwreck, when camaraderie, joyousness and democracy pervade the vessel from steerage to captain's table. Unlike the feelings of the, of the ship's passengers, however, our joy and escape, escape from disaster does not subside as we go our individual ways. The feeling of having shared in common peril is one element in the powerful cement which binds us, but that in itself would never have held us together as we're now joined. My experience of this paragraph, uh, there are two chief points. The first one, unless there is a common peril, and this is what, uh, why I, I, you know, I definitely go to, to, you know, as it were, kosher AA meetings, in addition to meetings where there are people from multiple fellowships. I continue to have as my home group, one in AA, because I need to be in a room where people have the same fundamental problem, the, the rallying point in step one. I've been to AA meetings in New York where it was clear that I might have been the only drinker in the room. Where pretty much everyone else, it was pills and powders from the sharing, like literally no. And then where do you take a drinker for identification if not to AA? You'd have to set AA up. So you might as well just anyway. Um, so lots of other stuff gets mentioned, but there has to be a chief rallying point. Secondly, you've got to have a common solution. Um, I, I was at a group many years ago where 
we had a group conscience and we said in tradition five what's our primary purpose what's the purpose of this group and some people said to create a safe space for people to share and get current and some other people said to share the solution straight out of the big book up to page 164 these do not have that there's nothing wrong with either of those but they don't really go together as a single primary purpose the group split and i think it was right to because there wasn't there was so much tension between the two approaches to what recovery was about the tremendous factor every one of us is that we've discovered a common solution we have a way out on which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action um, just historical footnote, there wasn't absolute agreement at the time. There was broad agreement between Akron and Ohio. The Akronites found the uh, uh, New Yorkers disagreeably uh, self-revealing in meetings and the New Yorkers had problems with the religiosity of the Akronites. Anyway, this is the great news this book carries for those who suffer from alcoholism. An illness of this sort, there's... Uh, a great play made of it being a disease. And I don't think in the big, in the basic text, it does refer to it as a disease at any point. It uses other terms like malady and illness, specifically to avoid the controversial question of whether it's a disease entity, uh, as doctors would understand the notion. And I think it's wise, particularly in public information work, to steer very clear of that. The notion that it's an illness or that there's something going on here means that we've got to understand, it's got its own dynamics, which are beyond reason and uh, the sort of intervention of, of common sense and willpower. There's something peculiar going on here, uh, which probably has a physical component. Um, and also it's a guilt relief, which is very important. Um, but I don't, I don't make a huge play of this uh, to treat it, treat the, the disease as a disease in the same way that Lyme's disease is or tuberculosis is. It's, if it's like a disease, it's more like something like heart disease, which is a, an umbrella term for a set of related physiological phenomena. And that's quite different than something like Lyme disease or tuberculosis, where there's a very specific disease-causing entity. Um, but anyway, it is useful to call it an illness as opposed to merely a moral failure. It does say, I think the doc, it, it, he quotes the doctor at some point, Dr. Silkworth, saying, basically, uh, although you're stupid and selfish, you're also ill. So just because you're ill doesn't mean you're not stupid and selfish too um not the doctor's finest moment perhaps but there we have it so there's more than one thing going on here uh, so the disease doesn't mean i'm not i don't have a morality problem and a stupidity problem but it means there's something beyond both of those if a person has cancer all are sorry for him and no one is angry or hurt but not so with the alcoholic illness for with it there goes annihilation of all things worthwhile in life it engulfs all whose lives touch the sufferers it brings misunderstanding, fierce resentment, financial insecurity, disgusted friends and employers, warped lives of blameless children, sad wives and parents. Anyone can increase the list. Um, now, the way I use this with sponsees is you've got to make a list of your own consequences uh, uh, 
uh, and consequences which hurt emotion. It's no good writing consequences which you don't connect with. The point being, when we come to a question later on, on top of page 21, we're going to be asking, did the consequences, did awareness of the consequences successfully induce me to moderate or stop? If you don't have a list of consequences, you don't have anything to, to perform that test with. So it's a good idea to make a brief list of consequences at this point, either emotional or external, and put a date next to them. When did they kick in? Because then you've got a date to compare. In my case, consequences started in 1986, and we've got uh, uh, drinking, um, uh, uh, drinking uh, continuing until 1993. Shame saying, yeah, all forms of spiritual disease. Uh, so it's interesting that he'll use the word disease about spiritual stuff, but he doesn't call alcoholism a disease in the strict sense. And that I, I understand that was deliberate. Um, let me have a look here. We hope this volume will inform and comfort those who are and may be affected. There are many highly competent psychiatrists who have dealt with this have found it sometimes impossible to persuade an alcoholic to discuss his situation without, without reserve. Yeah, and sponsees do anyway. Maureen would say to me a long time ago, yeah, if they're telling you around 65%, you're doing pretty well. Uh, strangely enough, wives, parents, and intimate friends usually find us even more unapproachable than do the psychiatrist and the doctor. Okay, boss level hack for sponsors. If you just don't understand what's going on with the sponsee, the chances are they're hiding something. And a really useful question is, just go away and think for 24 hours, is there anything major going on in your life you haven't told me about? And then it comes out. Don't put them on the spot because it won't work. But if you give them 24 hours to think about it, very often they'll say, uh, well, I won't go into the list of things. They're in the expected areas. You know, it doesn't take much imagination to figure out what those areas are. Uh, <laughs> they're areas for which there are other 12-step fellowships. Let's keep it simple. Um, but the ex-problem drinker who has found this solution, who is properly armed with facts about himself, can generally win the entire confidence of another alcoholic in a few hours. Until such an understanding is reached, little or nothing can be accomplished. And I think this speaks to the rallying point of step one. You've got to have something in common at the problem level for them to trust that the solution which worked for you will work for them. That the man who is making the approach has had the same difficulty that he obviously knows what he's talking about, that his whole deportment shouts at the new prospect that he is a man with a real answer, that he has no attitude of failure than now, nothing whatever except a sincere desire to be helpful, that, that there are no fees to pay, no access to grind, no people to please, no lectures to be endured. These are the conditions that we found most effective. Uh, this is a very good... <clears throat> set of ideals for sponsorship. And as we know from page 69, ideals are things we never fully reach, but they're things towards which we're willing to grow. And I use this as a checklist. If things are getting a bit um, tense with sponsees, I'll run back to this list and readjust my approach. And it, it always helps. It's also helpful as well as a guide to sharing in uh, meetings. Um, 
it's very i i i'm i'm an de absolute devil for this uh with with axe grinding in, in in meetings i've got to be really careful if something grinds my gears not to then grind my axe in response when it comes to sharing time like like park it share on a completely unrelated topic that's the tip there you may may not be able to get rid of the irritation in the meeting about the thing which annoyed you um but you can find something else useful to say and then come back and address the topic in question a different time once you've calmed down uh, after such an approach many take up their beds and walk again um, this is a very important uh, paragraph none of us makes a sole vocation of this work nor do we think its effectiveness would be increased if we did uh, when i've seen people do this uh, the tone changes people can take on the uh, uh, a, a separation develops between the person and AA because that there, there's a natural tendency to treat as a professional set of professional obligations whatever one is doing for the majority of one's time. I think it's a natural human propensity. And in people in service work in particular can become problematical. Um, they can become... Uh, stuck in particular roles that they won't give up and when they do give up the role they hover around making sure that the person who's taking up the role after after them is doing it properly of course they never do they launch in they correct they get the person walks and then everyone says it's such a shame we just can't find anyone to take up this role it's because you know um i won't name names uh, there was a, a meeting where for 15 years, the same person kept doing the tea because whenever someone new came in, they kept uh, interfering. Uh, so it talks about, it's going to talk about avocation somewhere, somewhere else it talks about avocation. So it's a sideline. I've got to have an occupation. Um, the second reason, <coughs> so that it's all sort of lighthearted and amateurish and uh, in, in spirit not and the content has to be done you have to deliver the content as professionally as you can but spirited amateur but it's also uh i think one's got to have a life uh in order for people to see that it works otherwise aa becomes this sort of huge ponzi scheme um we feel that elimination of our drinking is but a beginning a much more important demonstration of our principles lies before us in our respective homes occupations and affairs all of us spend much of our spare time in the sort of effort we're going to describe a few are fortunate enough to be so situated that they can give nearly all their time to work okay so there are several points here my sponsor is always banging on about uh the demonstration of our principles before us lies before us in our respective homes occupations and affairs to practice step 12 you've got to have affairs to practice them in they're not practiced in the vacuum they're practiced on content what is the content uh, an occupation uh, of some description doesn't have to be paid if you can't find paid work there's always volunteering there's always studying there's something to be something constructive to be uh spending the day doing and a home so there's got to be some kind of inner circle of people maybe you don't live with people but if you don't you can have people around a lot a home is a, is it's the inner circle of people that i consult with uh, and affairs other stuff in my life i um uh, Tom talks about a healthy person, someone who can work, love and play. Don Pritz talks about we're on 
God's amusement park planet, we better be enjoying it. And Joe talks about how um, uh, uh, recovery is like sex. If you're not enjoying it, you're not doing it right. So they've got to be, they've got to be affairs. There's got to be something going on other than the, the mere fulfillment of obligations. On the occupations front, um, I've, try, I've seen people try and get well or stay well without having a job or any volunteering going on or any studying going on. I've never seen anyone succeed. Um, usually people drink again. If they don't, other obsessions develop and they remain stuck in the same emotional patterns. Um, um, what's next? If we, oh, there was something else. A few are fortunate enough to be so situated that they can give nearly all their time to the work. Um, uh, so this appears to, co to contradict the first, well, it does contradict the first line of the paragraph. I think there are, there are certain people who are built to be able to do this, but they're few and far between. Um, so Jim, Jim W. in San Antonio is one such person, but they're rarer than hen's teeth the people who can do so and remain spiritually balanced. So he retired at 60 odd with X dollars in the bank and set up an office from which he does. He treats it like a job that he goes every day and has an office and people come and see him and he holds workshops and he does all sorts of things. Um, but <coughs> I think he was 40 odd years sober before he even started doing that. So it's not for the faint hearted. If we keep on the way we're going, there's little doubt that much good will result. But the surface of the problem would hardly be scratched. Those of us who live by in large cities are overcome by the reflection that close by hundreds are dropping into oblivion every day. Many could recover if they had the opportunity we'd enjoy. How then shall we present that which has been so freely given us? I think there's an important point in this principle, principle in this paragraph as well. Um, it's easy to get cosy in AA with your home group and your little daily routine, the person you share your Step 11 review with and a couple of sponsees. But the bigger question, we're in a much bigger context of being in a society where huge numbers of people have problems that 12-step fellowships could address, but they don't know about them, they haven't tried them, they've got skewed views of them, and the job isn't done until everyone who could be in recovery has been offered the chance and had, has had it adequately explained, that completely changes the game. So success is, is ultimate success is never achieved. There is always work to do. And that's been my attitude for a, a long time now. And it, it also changes the game of what I'm doing within, within AA. It, I'm not doing this just so that I have a nice day. I'm doing this as part of an effort uh, along with everyone else to grow the fellowships not for its own sake, but growth as a way of measuring, are we actually succeeding in carrying the message to the people that, that need it? Uh, we have concluded to publish an anonymous volume setting forth the problem as we see it. We shall bring to, our, bring to the task our combined experience and knowledge. This, this should suggest a useful program for anyone concerned with a drinking problem. Of necessity, there will be discussion, there will have to be discussion on matters medical, psychiatric, social and religious. We're aware that these matters are from their very nature controversial. Nothing would please us so much as to write a book which would contain no basis for contention or argument. We shall do our utmost to achieve that ideal. 
most of us sense that real tolerance. Of, uh, okay, I'm going to stop at that point. Uh, when you got sponsees, you're going to have questions, particularly of a medical and psychiatric um, nature arising. Uh, and it's very easy to swim outside one's lane as an AA member. So the job is to share your experience and share what you've observed about commonplace experience in AA without laying down the law on any of these things. If you're on, sometimes you can be very candid and open with people. If you don't know them very well, uh, that's, I find the way to avoid controversy is simply speak from experience and a little bit from observation of the people you've had in your inner circle. Um, most of a sense that real tolerance of other people's shortcomings and viewpoints and respect their opinions are attitudes which make us more useful to others. Um, the, the way I try and practice that is I avoid meetings where people are doing AA in a fundamentally different way than the way I do it, because all I'm going to do is aggravate people. It doesn't help. Uh, so I stick to the bits of AA, which where there's broadly agreement on what the solution is. Uh, that gets rid of a lot of strife. In London, things are very fluid, but in smaller places, often the big book groups have got a nasty reputation. Uh, and I've seen, I, I, I mustn't name the place uh, or even allude to it, but I've seen a particular place where there's a terribly strong group a city where there's a terribly strong group it's very successful but in the group they bash the rest of AA very overtly so you must not go to these other meetings they're all getting it wrong of course they're not getting it wrong because they're getting it they're doing what is right for them it may not it may not be right for the people who are in that group so lots of the sort of uh, other bits of AA are not right for me but they're not it's not wrong for the people who are doing it and this meeting's got almost terrible reputation as a result of it. And there's real hostility between that group and the rest of AA locally. And so people warn each other off. Uh, so if you've got sponsees, a good tip is, yeah, okay, like suggest they come to your home group every week. But say, go to whatever other group work. If another group helps and they're doing it super differently, if it's helping, keep going. If it stops helping, stop going. The basic principle, do what works and leave other people to get on with what they're doing, uh, seems to work very well with sponsees. Our very lives as ex-problem drinkers depend on our constant thought of others and how we may help meet their needs. Um, <coughs> um, this scares the bejesus out of some sponsees, um, uh, particularly those who come from a sort of... Uh, I suppose an alcoholic background with lots of Al-Anon stuff going on in the house they grew up in. And at some point along their path to you, they've learned that self-care is important and so on. And of course it is. You have to put your own oxygen mask on first before you can help someone else. But life does not consist in sitting there with an oxygen mask on. Once your oxygen mask is on, you've got to do something with it. Or it's like having a delivery van. Uh, if your delivery van is in a rotten state, you can't deliver anything. But the point of, of a delivery van is not to have the van in the garage with the spick and span. The point is to do something with it. So that's how you address, can address that with sponsors. If they say, but what about self-care? What about, no, there, there's no contradiction there. But 
it's looking after yourself to fit yourself to take a, an active and healthy role in contributing to the growing good of the world. You may already have asked yourself why it is that all of us became so very ill from drinking. Doubtless you're curious to discover how and why in the face of expert opinions to the contrary, we've recovered from a hopeless condition. Condition, again, illness, disease in the spiritual context, but here, condition of mind and body. Uh, if you're an alcoholic, is it slippery language on purpose? Uh, if you are, are an alcoholic who wants to get over it, you may already be asking, what do I have to do? <clears throat> it is the purpose of this book to answer such questions specifically. We shall tell you what we have done. Before going into a detailed discussion, it may be well to summarize some points as we see them. How many times people have said to us, I can take it or leave it alone. Why can't he? Why don't you drink like a gentle person or quit? Uh, that, that fellow can't handle his liquor. Why don't you try beer and wine? Uh, lay off the hard stuff. His willpower must be weak. <coughs> he could stop if he wanted to. She's such a sweet girl. I should think he'd stop for her sake. The doctors told him that if he ever drank again, it would kill him. But there he is all lit up again. If you listen to Mark H and Joe H, they employ this paragraph and they say, do we ever hear stuff like this in AA? Uh, do we ever hear people when they have a slip, everyone else say, well, they could stop if they wanted to. He's got everything to live for. Why doesn't he just stop? And I think there's a, there's a, there's a bit of a paradox here. Um, So without AA, I can't stop drinking. I, I'm doomed to drink. With AA, <coughs> uh, I can stop drinking. So I'm powerless on my own. But with AA, I'm no longer helpless. But I have to take the initiative. And the question is, uh, once the alcohol is out of the system, who's responsible for me staying sober today? And sometimes in big book world, <coughs> People try and poo-poo this old-fashioned AA idea of get to bed tonight without a drink. The only thing you have to do today is not have a drink. If you do that, you're a success. You get up tomorrow, do, do it again. Look at your clock. Look at your watch. If it says it's today, then today is the day you don't have a drink. You can have a drink tomorrow. They poo-poo saying that. Poo-poo that saying, if you could do that, you wouldn't need a program. And I think it's a false, it's a false opposition. Um, <clears throat> it was certainly not what Bill and Bob um, talk about. Bill talks about waves of self-pity and resentment, which almost drove him to drink, but he gets into active service and that saves him. In chapter um, 11, there's a similar idea, Bill and Bob on shaky ice, on thin ice, shaky ground, thin ice, so they go down to the local hospital. They need to do something to keep spiritually active. So they go to the local hospital and find a drunk to work. Bob talks about uh, continuing to want to drink <clears throat> for several years into recovery. And Bill D, AA number three, they say to him, can you stay sober for 24 hours? He says, anyone can do that. So I think the two ideas must be taken together. I had to, I had to have some, some willpower 
in my early days, I had to withstand horrible urges. I'm not going to name them as cravings or obsessions, urges to drink or, or do worse to myself. But I had to learn how to withstand them. And I could, I could withstand them because I employed all of the tools that AA laid at my feet. So it's not one or the other. It's not either I'm doing it myself or I'm 100% at the grace of God. It's not, it's not grace of God or willpower. Like there's no connection between the two. Like I'm not involved at all. There's a story about a monk who's tending a monastery garden. Someone walks past the monastery garden and says, gosh, this is wonderful, isn't it? Isn't it amazing? God's bounty, how gracious he is of giving all, giving us this, the, the, these fruit trees and these wonderful lawns and the herbaceous borders. And the monk looks up at him and says, yes, you're quite right, but you should have seen this place when he had it to himself. Um, <clears throat> God will do, Bob D says this, God will do for you what you can't do for yourself, but God won't do for you what you can do for yourself and Pookie in Austin says uh you've got to take action to activate your faith God ain't gonna slide no hot dog under your door so just because we're powerless doesn't mean that we can stand behind that and just slip to our heart's content waiting for God's grace to kick in there's going to be a period when it is rough there we go it's going to be rough but there's lots of help and you can withstand it with the help. Um, <clears throat> back to the text. Now, these are commonplace observations on drinkers, which we hear all the time. Back of them is a world of ignorance and misunderstanding. We see that these expressions refer to people whose reactions are very different from our own, from ours. Now, wah, 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 we're going into the diagnostic bit of the chapter. This is the bit you use to diagnose to help your sponsee diagnose whether they're an alcoholic. Everything else up to here has been nice, lovely, not diagnostic. Diagnostic tools coming up. And so basically you've got three categories of people. Number one, moderate drinkers. Category number two, certain type of hard drinker. Category number three, real alcoholic. Moderate drinkers are easy to spot. Your sponsee will probably readily dismiss that as one of the options and then you've got a certain type of hard drinker and a real alcoholic and the question is how are we going to distinguish between the two well actually first of all uh why do we need to and the reason we need to is the certain certain type of hard drinker can stop without a program and a fellowship and the higher power the real alcoholic can't stop without those so it's super important to know which you are because that will inform you about what you have to do to stay sober <coughs> so this certain type of hard drinker actually let, let's just dispense with the tedious moderate drinker moderate drinkers have little trouble in giving up liquor entirely if they have good reason for it they can take it or leave it alone then we have the, and so now we're on to the hard drinker. We have a certain type of hard drinker. He may have the habit badly enough to gradually impair him physically and mentally. 
This is someone that's having serious consequences. It may cause him to die a few years before his time. Now, this is the key line. If, uh, if a sufficiently strong reason, ill health, falling in love, change of environment, or the warning of a doctor becomes operative, this man can also stop or moderate, although he may find it difficult and troublesome and may even need medical attention. So remember earlier, top of page 18, we made a list of our consequences. What you do here, you take those consequences and you're not asking theoretically, could those consequences constitute a sufficiently strong reason to stop drinking? This is not a theoretical question. It's did they induce me to moderate or stop? And most people, most people who I encounter in AA, consequences hit and the drinking continues for years afterwards. There was one exception. There was someone I sponsored many years ago who, um, nice chap, still friends with him. The first sign of trouble was a psychotic episode in which he almost did a terrible thing under the influence of the psychosis. This so shocked him that he stopped drinking immediately, stopped drinking and taking drugs, and simultaneously with that joined AA. Now that poses a problem <clears throat> when you're sponsoring someone because, uh, because you're trying to intervene, you've got two things going on at once. The honest desire to stop altogether plus an external intervention, you can't tell whether the person would have been able to stop on their own uh, because the intervention is, it, 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 uh, is applied at the same time that the desire to stop altogether first arises. And this is a problem. Um, now, in this case, I think it was genuine. He was having a, a basically, he was on a wild tear for a number of years, uh, increasingly wild. But basically, it, he was fine with the consequences until this particular one, he realized a line had been crossed. This individual, he did the steps in AA. He never, it, it never felt right. He never, it never felt to me he was one of us. My friend Bruce, now deceased, said, never say one of us in AA. He said most of us belong to so many deviant subgroups. That could mean anything. Anyway, I never, I was never convinced he didn't, it didn't feel like he was psychologically and spiritually your kind of typical alcoholic. He wasn't neurotic. He wasn't selfish. He, he literally wasn't selfish. He just wasn't your standard model. Now, there are people who are standard, who aren't standard models, you know, who, who are sort of nice and pleasant, but definitely are alcoholic. They absolutely tried for years to stop and couldn't. But he, <clears throat> he left AA about five years ago and he's been, he is fine. He doesn't drink, doesn't take drugs, married, got kids, psychotherapist, and specializes in helping people who've uh, uh, <clears throat> suffered trauma through migration experiences. So people who've come from very violent parts of the world. Uh, that was what he was doing a couple of years ago when I last spoke to him. And he's wonderful. 
his life is devoted to helping others. He's doing what he's supposed to do. I don't th- I think if there was a candidate for the certain type of hard drinker, he would be it. I had another friend at university, Rob, <coughs> who now the, the important thing is the certain type of hard drinker looks like an alcoholic. Indistinguishable when they're drinking. Same quantity, same patterns, same consequences. But the certain type of uh, hard drinker, when it crosses a line, they just seem to stop. My friend Rob, his girlfriend, if you carry on drinking like that, she said, I'm going to leave you. He stopped. He moderated. He stayed cut down. And it wasn't he didn't break his stride. It didn't cause any emotional problems, no difficulties, just did it. Friend at school, both his parents were alcoholics. He drank a little bit as a teen. They sat him down when he was 17 and said, "Um, Buster, that wasn't his name. Buster, um, you know, alcoholism in the family. If you carry on drinking, the chances are you're going to become an alcoholic. So, So you probably shouldn't drink. And he said, okie dokie, and he hasn't. <clears throat> um, Seamus has raised an important point, which I'll come to in a bit. I want to get the distinction clear. So in, in almost every case, this is a straightforward diagnostic. My case, in 1986, consequences which should have induced me to stop kicked in and I neither stopped nor moderated. Therefore, so I don't need to think theoretically, could I? If I didn't, I can't. Simple as that. Um, But what about the real alcoholic? You may start off as a moderate drinker. You may or may not become a continuous hard drinker. Now, we've already, this is it's slightly badly written. I shouldn't really search about the holy big book, but I just have. Um, it's already defined a real alcoholic as being the category that's remaining after you get you after you, you, you carve out the moderate drinkers and you carve out the certain type of hard drinker. We already have a category defined. It's a, it's someone uh, where a strong reason becomes operative: ill health, falling in love, change of environment, or the warning of a doctor. And this person cannot stop or moderate. Already defined it. And you've got the two elements. Can't stop because of the mental obsession. Can't moderate because of the physical craving. So it's already defined it. This next paragraph, therefore, elaborates on the real alcohol. It doesn't contain the definition. It, it, gives, it gives a further elaboration plus an extra test. The extra test is fascinating. <clears throat> but what about the real alcoholic? He may start off as a moderate drinker. He may or may not become a continuous hard drinker. But at some stage of his drinking career, he begins to lose all control of his liquor consumption once he starts to drink. So you've already diagnosed someone as a real alcoholic by getting through this paragraph and identifying whether or not they stopped or moderated based on the uh bad experiences basically the bad experiences create a feedback loop which then informs the decision making and reduces the drinking or eliminates the drinking no that's why you're here great you're a real alcoholic let's learn something more 
And the question I ask is, the, uh, the reason I ask this question of people is because very often, let's say you've got a sponsor who's 40, you say, you know, um, buddy, how long have you been an alcoholic? And they say, oh, 18 months. It's always 18 months. It's never a year. It's never two. It's always 18 months. It's peculiar that. 18 months or so. And then you say, when did you first overshoot? When I was 14. Oh, 26 years ago. Okay. Well, what does the book say? At some stage of his drinking career, he begins to lose all control of his liquor consumption once he starts drinking. When did you first lose all control you're 14 when you're 14 did that keep happening oh yeah it happened every single time okay so buddy you've been a real alcoholic according to this for 26 years it just took you 24 and a half years to notice you're a slow noticer now that changes the situation because when you you see that there's there's the line in the 12 and 12 about um how do you get someone whose external life is still intact to see that their life is unmanageable? So unmanageability is not incompetence, neuroticism, disorganization, or consequences. It's something else. Um, the way you get them to see it is by going back to our own drinking histories, it says, we uh, show how long before the onset of real difficulties our drinking was no mere habit. It was indeed the beginning of a fatal progression. Because there's a big difference between having 24 and a half years of ordinary drinking, which just tipped over because of some circumstances, to, oh my God, I've been in a fatal progression for 26 years. I, you see what I mean? It completely changes the motivational structure for the rest of the steps. Because this is going to kill you. You haven't just crossed the line. You were born on the wrong side of the line. So you're stuck with this. Um, now's the point to bring in, and we'll cover it at greater depth, maybe the man of 30. So there is someone who looked like a certain type of hard drinker on page 30, stops for 25 years in willpower, but when he starts again, turns out his alcoholism has been progressing whilst he's been sober. So and so here's the killer line. Even if you've got someone who is uncertain, so they know they're in the certain type of hard drink, real alcoholic category, because there's no way of knowing whether the certain type of hard drinker will remain a certain type of hard drinker forever, because often they convert. You've got to treat yourself as being the real alcoholic, even if you're not 100% certain. Because the risks of, of, of not doing so are grave. Because you might be a certain type of hard drinker now. Roll the clock on 25 years. If you start again, you might not be able to stop then. And you often see this where people who come into AA can stop perfectly easily at five years, slip and stay slipped for years, on and off, try, trying to come in, in and out, revolving door clogging up Pine Street usually. Um, poor old things, there's nothing, and you, you try, you try, but there's nothing you can say because they're now on the other side of the looking glass. So the truth is, 
it's it's just like with the potential alcoholic there's there's a um a paradox which i'm sure is there there must be something in zeno or aristotle or someone talking about this paradox the paradox of the potential alcoholic so bill makes this great play of these potential alcoholics and real alcoholics now the thing is if you're a potential alcoholic you can stop yeah you could be heading for trouble but you can stop if you can stop you don't need to stop why because you can stop since you don't need to stop you don't stop so the potential alcoholic always carries on drinking the trouble is the potential alcoholic will cross the line to become the real alcoholic at some point but there won't be a trumpet and a telegram for the queen no one you're not going to suddenly realize the only way you can realize you've crossed the line from potential to real alcoholic is to discover you can't stop. Now, welcome to the domain of the real alcoholic you can't stop. So you're just as screwed if you're a potential alcoholic as a real alcoholic. So you might as well treat yourself as a real one, even if you only think you're a potential one. Because if you're a potential one, you're going to turn into a real one and you won't be able to tell until it's too late. So uh, this sort of, it's a false opposition between the two. It's a, it, it, it's a little bit like uh, pregnancy. If you're, uh, you could, you can be a little bit pregnant, but it's not going to stop. That. Unlike pregnancy, the progression is unpredictable. Lots of people I had uh, the downward progression is not if you can you can't see it on tape, but it's not a line which goes like that. In my case, it, it, it went down in steps and you don't know where the next step is going to be or how deep the drop is going to be with the step. And that's another thing which makes this incredibly dangerous. So if you're anywhere, if you're anywhere outside the subgroup of moderate drinkers, then your problem is the same, whether or not you qualify as a certain type of hard drinker or a real alcoholic. Um, there's a question here. Oh, that's not a question. Okay. Um, here is the fellow who has been puzzling you especially in his lack of control. Now this, this <coughs> I'm going to have to read it out because we're reading everything out. Oh, Alistair, you've got a question. Thanks, Tim. Um, uh, is it being picky to look at the words uh, assert or look at the vocabulary, a certain type of hard drinker? Is there an implication that there's another type of hard drinker or uh, is it just... Yeah, the vocabulary used. Yeah, there is. The, it does imply that, but um, I think that's just an artifact of his language because he doesn't go on to list and explain what the other types of uh, hard drinking are. So I, I, there's, I've tried to make something of that, but I've not succeeded. So if you manage, then send me a postcard. Now, by the time you get to this point here, once he's started to drink, you've already completed your diagnosis of your sponsee or you've helped them to complete the diagnosis themselves. Um, uh, I love this fiction in AA that we can't diagnose anyone as an alcoholic. <laughs> Does anyone really believe that? I'm, I'm really not. I'm really, anyway, that's another question. Um, 
you've already done the diagnosis at this point, and it's very simple. If you drink too much uh, and you've drunk too much for a while, what's too much? Enough to give rise to consequences which hurt you. If you didn't moderate and you didn't stop, then welcome to AA. It's as simple as that. Can't moderate, can't stop. You need a higher power. Boom. Once you've got there, the rest of this, um, it doesn't serve um, uh, diagnostic purposes. It gives you a general feel, hoping that lots of people will identify. People who are fairly progressed in their alcoholism will readily identify with this paragraph. Some people won't. A lot of people under 30 just don't. I did because, I mean, I was dangerously antisocial just to pick one of those lines. I'm a little better now, apparently. Um, so with this paragraph, what I get people to do is say, read this paragraph. If you identify with anything, you get bonus points, but you don't get deductions for not identifying. You can. It's like with lots of like disease diseases, organic diseases, they present in different ways. I mean, the disease, the current disease, which shall not be named, presents differently in different people. There are the symptom lists and they say you may get some or all of these symptoms. All that, And same with side effects, side effects of um, uh, 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 pharmacological drugs. Um, uh, it always says in the package leaflet, here are some side effects, although not everybody gets them. These are side effects. Um, so they just help people to feel at home. So if they help you to feel at home, great. If you feel alienated because you just don't identify with them, don't sweat about it because it doesn't mean anything. This is very important, particularly for, for women. Men, are, because this is a description of very, very, in my experience, very much a male alcoholic. Uh, my experience of female sponsees that, that the patterns are, are, are just different or can be different, can be different. Of course, there are exceptions in both directions. Here is the fellow who has been puzzling. Uh, oh, and this is what you can do with this paragraph. You can turn it against yourself line by line and ask yourself, is this me? Uh, in a literal sense or even a figurative sense, here is the fellow who has been puzzling you. And, you know, someone said to me, do you puzzle yourself? Yes, I puzzle myself daily. Okay, good. <laughs> Especially in his lack of control. Do you puzzle yourself in your lack of control? Well, yes, I do. When you're trying to look at this description from the outside, it looks like a crazy person. And you say, well, I don't want to deal with all that. Don't, don't want to identify with that. As soon as I say, am I like this line by line? What you'll find is people will read this, not identify with it. Then go through it line by line and go, oh, I identify with every single line. It's just that the overall picture is repugnant, but mm, I do identify with each individual line. So, you know, if it's got all the features of a duck, it's probably a duck. If you'll let me go a couple of minutes over, Alistair, just to get the dreaded paragraph out of the way. He does absurd, incredible, tragic things while drinking. He's a real Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. No happy ending in that book, by the way. He is seldom mildly intoxicated. He is always more or less insanely drunk. His disposition while drinking resembles his normal nature, but little. He may be one of the finest fellows in the world. 
uh, yet let him drink for a day and he frequently becomes disgustingly and even very daily male, disgustingly and even dangerously antisocial. He has a positive genius for getting tight, drunk, at exactly the wrong moment, particularly when some important decision must be made or engagement kept. He is often perfectly sensible, haha, and well balanced concerning everything except liquor. Show me someone. But in that respect, he is inc incredibly dishonest and selfish. He often possesses special abilities, skills, and aptitudes. People always identify with that, and has a promising career ahead of him. He uses his gifts to build up a bright outlook for his family and himself and then pulls the structure down on his head by a senseless series of sprees. I ask people to ask themselves if they do that sober, like without any drink in their system. Do you ever self-sabotage? Uh, he is the fellow who goes to bed so intoxicated he ought to sleep the clock around. Yet early next morning, he searches madly for the bottle he displaced the night before. If he can afford it, he may have liquor concealed all over his house to be certain no one gets his supply away from him to throw down the water pipe. I waste pipe. I get people to ask themselves, and that, because this is a question I ask myself, in with alcohol and with other stuff, what do I do to secure the supply? With sex, with romance, with food, with other things. What do I do to secure the backup plans, better offerism, juggling, juggling people, juggling situations? Um, uncomfortable question. As matters, there's, what's his name? Um, there's a psychiatrist, 20th century psychiatrist who talks about sex and love addicts using other people like delivery systems. Um, securing the supply. Uh, as matters grow worse, he begins to use a combination of high-powered sedative and liquor to quiet his nerves so he can go to work. If anyone says you can't mention drugs in AA, I know I said don't focus exclusively, but if someone says you can't mention them, just, just tell them page, you know, whatever this is, page uh, 22, and then walk off, and then they'll have to go and look it up. Um, so you can mention drugs. Then comes the day when he simply cannot make it and gets drunk all over again. Perhaps he goes to a doctor who gives him morphine or some sedative which, with which to taper off. Then he begins to appear at hospitals and sanitariums, brackets, treatment centers and detoxes. So I'm going to thank you for bearing through that paragraph and get, letting me go over time. I'm going to stop there. And thank you, Alistair. Thank you, Tim. That seems like an appropriate place to pick it up on page 22 with the paragraph next week by um, this by no means. Um, and uh, with that, I will hand it back to you, Tim, to ask you, I, I, well, just to, for everyone, I've dropped a, uh, a link in for the recordings, for the previous recordings, and uh, this, the recording of this meeting will be available in the next couple of days, and with that, I'll hand it back to Tim, if you care to unmute. Thanks. Uh, would you please help me close with a serenity prayer? God, grant me the serenity, serenity. to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change things I can, and the wisdom to know the, wisdom difference. To know the difference. Thank you, Tim. Thank you.